the letter sat unfinished. His hand was cramped and shaking, but he wasn't done. He knew there was much more to say. Sitting in his borrowed home, 150 miles away, he looked westward toward the sea. He knew their city was crumbling around them. Their relationships were eroding within them. And so his pastor's heart welled up. What hope could he give? It had been five years since he'd been there, and he was absolutely heartsick. He longed for the young church just over the western horizon, but with their world crumbling around him, how could he actually call them to be thankful? Was he joking? No, he wasn't kidding. Before he folded the letter, the longest he would ever write, the Apostle Paul picked up his pen and continued writing. I'm going to lower the wall just a little bit here. This has been a very difficult few weeks. Two Saturdays ago, a coward walked into a synagogue in Pittsburgh and took 11 lives that were not his to take. This past Wednesday, a group of us stood and sat next to a friend as she buried her father who passed from cardiac arrest suddenly. While most of us were sleeping on Thursday morning, 12 more people in California lost their lives due to violence. Racial tensions are high, economic gaps are widening, and unless you've been living under a rose-colored rock, this planet that we live in is a mess. And so the idea of give thanks, like really? You guys joking? No, we're not kidding. This idea of thankfulness, this is not a flippant thing. This is hard. And if you're living honestly, being thankful can be immensely difficult. How do you cultivate a heart of thankfulness when everything around you is falling apart? It's that question that Paul had in his mind when he was closing out his first letter to the church in Corinth. And it's that question that we're going to turn our minds to this morning. So last week, we wrapped up a three-week series in the book of Habakkuk. And if you were with us for that, you remember that the summary of this idea is no matter what, though the fig tree doesn't blossom, though things don't go my way, I will yet rejoice in the Lord. And that theme actually dovetails really well with this three-week series called Give Thanks. So for the next three weeks, we're going to build kind of a practical theology of thankfulness. Today, we're going to look at three verses near the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And out of these verses, you'll see a principle emerge, and here it is. Thankfulness fuels faithfulness. Put it another way, when you're thankful for what Christ has given you, you will be faithful in his purposes for you. Thankfulness fuels faithfulness. And that brings us to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 56. So if you've got a Bible or a phone, go ahead and get there. Uh, If not, you can just follow along on the screens. 
Verse 56 of chapter 15. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law, Paul says. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Well, jumping into this text right here, it kind of feels like flipping on the TV right in time for like the Super Bowl trophy presentation. All right, the cannons have already fired, the field is covered in confetti, the music is up, the victory t-shirts have already been passed out. But if you flip on the TV in time for the party, you're likely to miss the point. As good as it is to see the finale, it's also gratifying to see the fight. So let's hit the back arrow a bit. Go back to verse 50. And if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Just listen to this. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I'll tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Here's where it goes. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? What's going on here? Paul is using this incredibly beautiful language to talk about this one-day transformation. You've got eyes twinkling, trumpets blasting, like is that a bee sting in there, right? Death is being eaten alive, like what's happening, right? At the center of all of this is Jesus who makes this possible. And so here's the point of the text. One day, King Jesus is going to come back and show us how it's done. One day, King Jesus will come back and he will rule and reign over his people. And there will be no reason to cower. There will be no reason to fear because he has conquered death. He has conquered sin. And he's given us the gift of himself. That's coming one day. That will be fully realized. But we are here. And so Paul gives us the encouragement. Thanks be to God. Verse 57. So there's two things we want to see in this text. It's a super simple text. Two things we want to see. The reason for our thankfulness and then our response to it. The first reason, or the reason for our thankfulness, it's right there in the verse, we have victory. He says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. A few observations for you. First off, victory is a gift. There is nothing so offensive to Brandon Marshall's pride as God's insistence that I receive from him. If you're the kind of person who always needs the victory, you're not going to have much interest in the Jesus of the Gospels because he gets it all. How many of you have ever gotten advice like this? God helps those who... Right? You've got to pull yourself up by your own 
okay? Or when the going gets tough, the tough, right? Terrible advice. Why? Because according to Jesus, you can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps because you don't have any boots. <laughs> and when the going gets tough, you shouldn't get going. You should quit. Say, Jesus, I can't do this anymore. You fall on your face and say, that's it, I'm done. Jesus has already won the battle and he wants to put the trophy on your mantle. Here's how this ties to thankfulness. It's impossible for me to be thankful for something that I've done myself. Second observation about this victory. This victory is a present victory. Did you catch that? He uses the present tense. He said, thanks be to God who gives us the victory. This isn't like something that God did once a long time ago and we can look back and go, man, that was really great. It's not like it's something that's dangling like this perpetual carrot in front of our nose, like, oh, that's gonna be cool. No, gives us the victory, a present tense victory. How many of you know you need a present tense victory? Why? Because we have present tense battles. But we can be honest, there are some of you in the room right now that do not feel victorious. You feel defeated, you feel stepped on, you feel maligned, you feel forgotten about. Or maybe you've been doing battle with the same sin in your life for years and you can't break it. Maybe it's a relationship that you want to have healed and it just won't heal. Or it's a dream that you have for your life, a family, a job, a hope, something hanging out there and you can't bring it to pass. And so you hear words like that and you go, yeah, God gives us the victory. Yeah, maybe for you, but not for me. Which brings us to the third observation. Victory is given through Christ. Jesus is victorious in the one battle that we could never win for ourselves, namely our sin. Through his death, he filled the greatest need that we have, our relational debt to our Heavenly Father. And still, many people treat Jesus' work like it's like this imaginary victory. Like, oh man, yeah, I'm all in. Church is great. I love people. So yeah, Jesus, he's great. I love Jesus a lot. Yay. But that's too detached because they've never personalized the battle. The victory is sweet because the battle is mine. Where's the battle? Go back to verse 56. Make sure you see it. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. Here's the deal. Each of us have a massive sin problem. Every one of us. And Paul is saying that the road to your thankfulness runs through the sorrow of your sin. We talk about sin in like such abstract terms, don't we? We say things like brokenness and pain and you know, sometimes we just shake our heads and stare wistfully at the ground and go, oh, I don't know, this world is a mess. Well, there's a name for that feeling. It's called sin. That our world is profoundly messed up. And it doesn't do any good to minimize it, gloss over it, or sweep it under a rug. But it gets worse than that, guys. We have a share in that. You and me, right? It's not like sin or brokenness or pain or whatever word you choose. It's not like it's this cloud like lingering and floating around out there somewhere. Like, no, it's in here. And so I can't outrun it. I can't get away from it. It's shackled to my soul. 
And so as such, we share culpability in this whole mess that we see. And you go, well, I've never killed anybody. Well, yeah, but you've nursed hate in your heart. And you go, well, I've, I've never cheated on my wife or my husband. Like, well, yeah, but you looked at that person twice. And you've got something going on where nobody can see it. And you go, well, I'm not that bad of a person. Like, aren't people basically good? No, we're not. Like, I really wish I could say that, but no, we're not. I'm the problem with my world. Me and my sin. I have fractured my relationship with my father and there's no one to blame but me. I need someone to be victorious over me. I need someone to conquer me. We are worse sinners than we would ever care to admit. But here's the good news. We are loved way more than we would ever imagine. Everything everything that God demands of us, he provides for us in the person of Jesus. He demands holiness, and I don't have it. He says, fine, here, take Jesus. He demands love, and I am so selfish. Like, guys, ridiculously selfish. And he says, here, take Jesus. He demands obedience to him, and I go, no, because I'm a rebel. I don't want to. He says, here, Christ, be formed in you. I love you, you stubborn, wandering rebel child. I love you as you are, not as you should be. In 1664, a young man who was 17 at the time named Samuel Crossman wrote a poem talking about this astonishing love that God has for us. And he takes us to the scene where Jesus is walking through the crowds. Here's what he writes. He says, my song is love unknown. My Savior's love for me. Love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. But who am I that for my sake my Lord should take frail flesh and die? Look how they crowd his way and his sweet praises sing, resounding all the day, Hosanna to their king. Then crucify is all their breath and for his death they thirst and cry. Why? What has my Lord done? to cause this rage and spite. He made the lame to run and he gave the blind their sight. What injuries, yet these are why the Lord Most High so cruelly dies. And here's his resolution. Here might I stay and sing of him my soul adores. Never was love, dear king, never was grief like yours. This is my friend in whose sweet praise I all my days would gladly spend. How good is that, right? 17 years old. Don't tell me high school students can't do anything. Guys, here's why understanding God's victorious love over your sin is important. Because some of you don't feel very lovable. Here's how I know. Some of you, inwardly, you can't believe that a holy God would love you. You feel worthless, you feel dirty, you feel guilty. Maybe because you were told that you were those things. Or maybe because you have been in a relationship that has its thumb on you. Or maybe you're nursing the idea, this is a popular one, that no one would love me if they knew all the things I hide. And so what do you do? You close off. Or you project this like false self. 
Others of you, though, you don't hide. You work for your love. And so you try to perform for God. You try to earn his affection. And honestly, you are exhausted by it. Maybe because you had a parent who only demonstrated love when you performed or because you've bought into this idea that your identity is somehow wrapped up in being something, looking like something, or achieving something. And so you don't close off, you knuckle down, you try harder. And then there's this the third group. You have gone through so much pain that you have numbed yourself. And so you can't feel love because you can't feel anything at all. And my heart breaks for you. You go about life one foot in front of the other like a hollow ghost stumbling through the weeks. And so the idea of a wild, relentless, unconditional love seems like an impossible fantasy that's honestly a bit scary. And it is scary. Here's God's word for you. If you are closed off, Stop hiding. Come out from under your fear. If you are knuckled down, stop working so hard. If you are numb, trust him. He loves you and he will care for you. Love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. Guys, that's the gospel, right? Love, unconditional love, no strings attached from a sovereign God to the loveless shown, right? Poor, blind beggars bringing nothing, That they might lovely be, be what? Adopted children of the king. Guys, we've got reserved seats at his table. And the best part of that is it is a right now free gift because of Jesus, So that's the reason for our thankfulness. Victory because of Christ. Now our response. Here's the second half. In light of the fact that God gives us a present victory as a gift through Jesus, what ought we to do? Take a look at verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, by extension, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Two imperative verbs set off by two participles, right? And all the grammar nerds in the room said, both of you, I heard you. Everybody else said, no, it's like eighth grade all over again. Why are you doing this to me? Two imperative verbs, I hope you caught them, right? Be steadfast and be immovable. Steadfast, it means to have your heels dug in. Like someone's playing tug of war with you and you're like, no, I'm not going. And then immovable, it's only used once in the New Testament here really special word, and it, mean, it, it means to not get fidgety. It's like what parents tell their kids, like, just sit still for a little bit. Be steadfast, be immovable. These are great words. For the child of God, which if you acknowledge your sin and you claim Christ as your rescuer, you are, these are resolute words, not restless words. Thankfulness, then, is a posture to take, not just a profession to make. I'll say that again because it sounded really good. Thankfulness is a posture to take, not just a profession to make. I just don't want to tell Jesus I'm thankful. I want to show him with my life. 
And this is what Paul describes it. He goes on to describe what that actually looks like. And here are your participles. He says, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's what your life looks like if you're thankful. Always abounding. Knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Because that's really the question, isn't it? Is my life in vain? What is the purpose of my life? Does my life count? Do I make a difference? And we're all asking that. So if you're, if you're in this room and you're a student, your world is a fury of hope and loss and joy and confusion and identity and who should I be and where should, who should I be around? What should I be like? If you're a young parent, you're like gripping on the rails going, how am I gonna get out of this thing alive? Okay. If you're an empty nester, you're waking up to the idea that, wow, I can rediscover my spouse and there's life after a career. Or if you're an elder, you're looking back in the glow of a legacy that you hope will follow you. Or maybe you're living in regret of one that hasn't panned out the way that you had hoped. No matter what stage you're in, we're all asking the same question. How can I live a meaningful life? Or to put a biblical word on it, how can I be sure that my life is not in vain? Answer, thankfulness fuels faithfulness. Did you get it? So if Paul is calling us to be steadfast and immovable, if he's calling us to these things, it's helpful to understand what prevents them from happening. And so in my experience, here are three enemies of thankfulness that we want to walk through this morning. Three enemies of thankfulness. Here's your first one, cynicism. Cynicism. Cynicism is this twisted mouthed inclination to believe that, well, like things are going to be the way they're going to be, and people are the way they are, and I can't really change anything. It takes all that suffering that we talked about earlier and it sneers at it. When you are cynical, you refuse to push through anything. Interestingly enough, the founder of cynic philosophy, Diogenes, lived in Corinth. So here's how this works. Cynicism leads to complaining. Okay? Complaining leads to bitterness. Bitterness leads to isolation. And isolation leads to hate. I'll line those back up so you can catch it. Cynicism. When the wrongness of this world seeps into the cracks of your heart and freezes and breaks you apart... It's largely internal, right? But when cynicism gets social, it sounds like complaining. Because you're only able to complain about things when you've taken your eyes off of the good gifts that God has given you and you focus on what you don't have. And then complaining eventually leads to bitterness because when you sit in that pool of self-pity long enough, you actually become acclimatized to it. So when nobody steps in to join you in your complaining, you get bitter, right? Because not only are you feeling terrible, but now you're all alone, which leads to isolation. Because number one, you've gotten yourself to the point where you can no longer have any real friendship with someone who has abiding joy. And number two, because you have become buzzkill incarnate. And nobody wants to be around you anyway. And then Satan steps in and changes that isolation into hate. Where you live your life believing that you are justified in your hatred of a certain people group, political party, social class, 
or a type of people. All these like false barriers that Jesus never talks in. And you arrive at this place that looks an awful lot like a New Testament Pharisee. The kind of people Jesus pushed so hard against in the Gospels. Here's the thing. Hatred is not an accident. Like we just arrived over here out of nowhere. It's like a thorn bush that started something small and insignificant but grew and knotted itself around your heart and is now destroying you and you don't even see it. But here's the most tragic thing about that whole process if you're paying attention. Satan doesn't even have to step in until the very last step because you've already done all the hard work yourself. And so you find yourself at the bottom of a hill. Here's the point. Here's how this works in Jesus' economy. Okay, track with me. According to Jesus, love for God is measured in love for neighbor. Right? You want to know how somebody loves God? Take a look at how they love their neighbor. But then it gets, it gets better. Love for neighbor is measured by love for enemy. How do you love your neighbor who's like you? How do you love the person who's not like you? Okay, so let's put these two ideas together. If I say that I love God, but find myself hating my enemy, I don't actually what? Love God. Do you see how a theology of mission is connected to a theology of thankfulness? If I'm thankful for what God has done for me, I've got to get this out to everybody. Because if I don't love God, I can't be thankful for what he's done for me. The remarkable thing about how Jesus does this is he spends so much time pushing against cynicism. Like, just take a look at the Apostle Paul, right? If you could go back in time and talk to Paul's neighbor when he was still Saul, before he was converted, right? And you would say, hey, that guy out there who's killing Christians, one day, God's gonna get a hold of his life turn it around, and he's going to share the hope of Jesus with thousands of people, and he's going to change his world. And that neighbor would go, that guy? No way. And then Jesus goes, watch this. So here's the point. What potential world changer is in your life, and how can you love them? Second enemy. Well, sorry, before we go, you got three resolutions on your handout. Some of you are like, wait, there's blanks there. He didn't tell me my blank. I know how that goes. Here you go. Here's your first one. To battle cynicism, to battle cynicism, I will practice love. To battle cynicism, I will practice love. I say practice because it is hard work. So here's your second enemy of of thankfulness. Entitlement. Entitlement. Now I'm gonna step on a few toes here. So sorry, you expected it. You kind of know you did. So... Here's the thing. I talk to people in their 50s, 60s, and 70s, and they say, oh my gosh, kids today, they're so entitled, millennials, right? Shakes fist. And then I talk to people in their 20s and 30s, and they go, oh my gosh, like this is an older generation. Like if they can't have it their way, they just check out. Like they're so entitled. And I go, like you two should maybe talk and get together. Here's what this tells me. Entitlement is a pan-generational problem. You're not entitled because you were born in a certain generation or because you were born between two dates. You're entitled because you were born at all. (laughs) That's how entitlement works. 
Attainment is an indicator on the dashboard of my life that my life has become profoundly self-centered. And like every other sin, that needs to be brought under the loving authority and lordship and sovereignty of King Jesus and crucified for his glory. Otherwise, I quietly nurse the notion that the world owes me something. Author Brennan Manning tells this great story of this guy who goes into a restaurant and he orders a crab meat salad for lunch. Okay, so he says, I like a crab meat salad. The server goes away and he sits there twiddling his thumbs. And when the server finally comes back, she puts the salad in front of him and he looks at it and he goes, what the heck is this? And she's like, it's your salad, sir. He says, I want a crab meat salad. This is a shrimp salad. And he leaves the restaurant in a huff and leaves her overwhelmed in the embarrassment of her mistake. What's the point of that story? Entitlement kills mission and undermines thankfulness. Hear me. Life does not owe you a crab meat salad. Entitlement rests on the idea that Brandon Marshall deserves something, and I don't. Not a thing. And here's where the gospel comes in. Shrimp salad is fine, because I'm convinced of the idea that I don't deserve a salad at all. Jesus has given me everything. What's with this? It's okay. Loosen up a little bit. So here's your second resolution. To battle entitlement, I will release my rights. Give up. Why? Because when you come to Jesus, everything else fades into this blissful, blurry background. Last enemy of thankfulness. Here you go. Distraction. Distraction. Our world is full of distractions. It could look like a secret porn addiction that you keep from your spouse, a gambling habit that you need to keep your life interesting, an emotional affair that you use as leverage to maintain your own self-esteem, whatever it is. Here's what C.S. Lewis has to say about that. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. His conclusion it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Hear me, Jesus' biggest problem with your alcoholism, your porn addiction, your shopping addiction, your endless quest for significance is not that you are too pleasure-seeking, but that you are not nearly pleasure-seeking enough. On the road to discovering the pleasure that you were created to enjoy, you pulled off into a raunchy, dimly lit, smelly rest stop where you filled up on cheap, diluted, feeble pleasures that could never sustain your soul. You have settled. And that breaks his heart. And there is no joy there. And you know it. A joyless Christian 
is about as useful to the world as a blind optometrist. There is a bottom to even the best bottle of wine, sometimes in one sitting. And so here comes the gospel charging in, Psalm 1611, where David says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. So when you could have Jesus, why settle for these small joys? So here's your last resolution. To battle distraction, I will seek deeper pleasures. And there is no deeper pleasure than a life spent with Jesus. The old apostle looked west, folded up his letter, sealed it, and then he sent it off. Any practical theology of thankfulness must be shot through with Christ. Or put it another way, you can't get to thankfulness without going through Jesus who makes it possible. That means that every good meal that you enjoy, every sunset you see, every hearty laugh that springs from a good joke is a gift that's been given to you by Christ for his glory and your joy. And so as we think about this season, we turn our hearts to thankfulness. Here's my last word. Spend this season with Jesus. Let's pray, can we? Our Father in heaven, we say thank you. And we can never say thank you enough. You've given us so much. So much that we do not deserve. You've withheld from us so much, so much that we do. So Father, when we think about your love, when we think about the victory that is ours because of your son, there's nothing else that we can say. And say, here's my life, like take me, I am yours, I am done. So God, if there's some in this room right now who have been wrestling, I pray that you would win, that you would have your way right now in their hearts. If there's some that feel lost and alone, God, I pray that you would speak tenderly to them. Remind them that they are loved with a holy, holy love, no strings attached. God, would you wake us up and call us to live thankful lives that would produce faithfulness in the places you've called us to be. Because of your love, God, we can sing. Thank you for Jesus, in whose name everybody said, amen.